Amy and I have always been a little bit sentimental about plants. So when we moved from Indiana to Nashville, we dug up some of the plants out of our yard and brought them with us. And one of those is a Judai viburnum, and I planted it right outside the window where I usually sit in the morning. And uh, I was sitting this morning drinking coffee, and I could smell that the viburnum had bloomed. And if you've never smelled a Judai viburnum bloom, it just smells so good. It reminds me of my days as a tree planter, when me and Johnny Crooked Tree would be out in the fields, rounding up the trees that we'd plant that day. And there was a particular field full of Judai viburnums. There were probably 70 or 80 of them. And when they bloomed, I would go stand in the middle of that field for a good five minutes and just breathe it in. There's nothing that smelled that good. And it was impossible to be in a bad mood when you're standing in the middle of the field. It only blooms about a week out of the year, and this is that week. So I'm enjoying the hell out of it while it's here. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Wayne Kramer. Wayne is a singer, songwriter, a guitarist, a producer, a film and TV composer. You might know him from his band, The MC5. You can find out everything you need to know about Wayne at waynekramer.com. I got together with Wayne a few weeks ago in Austin, Texas, when we were getting ready to play a Jail Guitar Doors event. We had a lot of good response last week from part one, and on part two, we're going to talk a little bit about Jail Guitar Doors, and Wayne's going to explain how that came about. I really enjoyed getting together with him, and I think you will too. Here's Wayne Kramer. You know, I I, I was aware of the New York Dolls. Um, I didn't think much of them, really. I mean, I, I like that they were brash and and outrageous but i just didn't hear a lot in the music and then uh time went on you know i i uh i went down the drain i got into trouble i went to prison and uh right after i got out i put a band together in detroit and and the bass player that was working with me a man named ron cook really good bass player um called me up one day and said this kid Johnny Thunders is in town in Detroit today, and he, you know, he's a big fan, and he wants to know if you'll come down to the club and sit in. I said, yeah, sure, sure. You know, I mean, I'm honored somebody was inviting me to go somewhere and play. Uh, yeah, so I went down and uh, and sat in with the Heartbreakers, and he told me that he had, was a huge Wayne Kramer fan all his life, and. Uh, that the dolls were fans of the MC5, and it was very pleasant. And I sat in on a couple numbers, and we, we went backstage, and and um, 
And uh, before we could even talk, I noticed that, you know, him and Jerry Nolan had to run into the toilet stall and shoot up. And, you know, it came, they came out and they were they were really high and they were, you know, really genial and outgoing and they're feeling good. And I just, it threw me so badly because I'd just come out of the penitentiary for this kind of behavior. You know, the MC5 um, had drug addiction run run through and through it. You know, it was a huge contributing factor to the demise of the band. And I, I just, I, I was, I was kind of it put me off a little bit you know and and you know i'm a, a clean addict myself i'm a sober alcoholic and and i was trying hard to to not fall back into old behaviors and you know here i am back back in the middle of it again you know and unfortunately my own grandiosity uh, I deluded myself into thinking that I could somehow have a band with this kid and it, it, I could make it all work. Like the, the power of the music was going to somehow supersede his addiction. And uh, of course that's ludicrous. And, and uh, you know, he wanted to start a new band with me and he wanted to call it gang war. Like we were two gang leaders from different cities joining up together. And I say, Oh, this is all romantic. I love it. It's great. <laughs> and I like the idea of the band because he could be the front man and he could knock shit over and stagger around the stage. And I had a Detroit rhythm section with me, this guy, Ron cook and, and John Morgan on drums. And these guys could play their asses off. So I knew we could rock the music. We knew the music, I knew the music was going to be there. And then he could be the front guy and just, you know, be a character out there. But you can't be in business with, with a active using uh, narcotics addict, you know, because they have a, a priority that's not the band. <laughs> it's not anything but, but their um, disorder, you know, their, their addiction will interfere with everything and it was just a, the band was a disaster and ultimately uh, you know we had to go our own ways do you remember where you were when you heard about his passing um it, i saw it in the in the news like everyone else and and it, you know he lived longer than i thought he would i mean he really abused his body to such an extreme that i mean i was shocked he lived that long I mean, I, I didn't think he'd make it much longer than after I quit working with him. He, uh, you, you know, you can't, your body, a human body can take some abuse. We're pretty sturdy. <laughs> we're, we're pretty resilient, but we, you know, we're, we're, you know, you can't take too much abuse. And I, I, you know, some, I used to think that, you know, maybe it was our business, you know, this lifestyle of being a musician, but I don't, I don't think it has to do so much with being a musician. It's, it's just, uh, you know, you can drink as hard as you want to drink for about 20 years. <laughs> and after that, you know, your liver's going to go, you know, there, there are very few old drunks or old junkies. <laughs> you just, you, you don't make it, you know, the, the attrition rate is very high and, uh, you know, I mean, two of the guys in the MC5 drank themselves to death. Three, really. Uh, you know, the the trail is littered with the corpses of guys who thought that they it wouldn't affect them, that they would get to be old guys, and they didn't get to be old guys. It's just it's very it's a very tough um, 
pernicious chronic mental disorder. And I don't really have a solution. You know, I mean, I, I know what's out there. I, I know how I, how the 12 step programs have benefited me, you know, how I I've learned a great deal about what my problem is. And, uh, but you know, it doesn't work for everybody and it's, it's a, it's a tough one. So, you know, I mean, he just wasn't the kind of guy that was going to like get sober and go to the gym and, 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 you know, and get on the good foot. He, he believed the rock and roll lie, the myth, you know, and I, we used to talk about, it. I'd say, you know, you don't actually have to live this way. You can still be Johnny Thunder's dangerous rock and roller, but you don't have to live this way. You can actually have a wife and children and, you know, and be healthy and enjoy your life. You don't have to be miserable all the time. But uh, he, he had to be miserable. He, he loved it so much. I was hired. Um, I was living in New York in the 80s. And a friend of mine called up and said he knew this kid who had a band and they wanted to hire me to play some sessions for them. Well, it's part of what I do. You know, people call me up and uh, every now and then and ask me to play on their stuff. And and so I went over to the studio and, and met this guy, Gigi Allen and his band. And and in those days, he was just like a really enthusiastic young rocker. You know, he was excited about his band and he was excited about his songs and he seemed to be thrilled to have me there to play on the stuff with him. And, and he had a little bit of money to pay me. And I, you know, I don't care, 80 bucks or a hundred dollars or something. And we pl played and it was, it was a nice night, you know, um, he had not yet evolved into the, into the bizarre performance artist that he <laughs> later became, you know, I just watched that footage uh, that YouTube footage of of that his last night, yeah, him walking down the street. On the street, it's compelling. Yeah, it's really powerful stuff, and you can see he's clocking everything. He knows what's going on. Yeah. I mean, he, I mean, everything he did was pretty pretty calculated. You know, he he wasn't really out of his mind. I I think his death was ac an accidental death. I think he got too high, and you know. You, when you take speed and and cocaine, you know you you get forward and you can't get to sleep. So then he takes heroin to to balance that out, and that's a tricky equation. You know, you if you miss if you miscalculate your portions, you wake up dead. And you know, I think that's what happened to him. I mean, I don't think he was trying to do himself in. I think he just wanted to finally go to sleep, and and he did one extra bag. Did you ever witness any of these shows as he later evolved? You know, I never did. He, I was living in Nashville, as a matter of fact, and he came to town and he called me up. And this was after he had gotten out of prison. He had done some time, I think. He did a couple years in Michigan, and he was back out on tour. And he came to Nashville, and he said, well, Wayne, how you been? I said, I'm great, man. How you doing? Well, I just got out of prison. Ah, interesting. Me too. <laughs> and and uh, he said, yeah, I'm playing in town tonight. You want to come down? And I said, yeah, sure. That'd be fun. And then uh, the gig never happened. The authorities banned him. They, they, they wouldn't let him perform. <laughs> he was indignant about that. And, uh, but I don't think he, he still hadn't quite evolved to the, 
the uh, scatological uh, <laughs> extremes that he later achieved, uh, the X-lax and uh, bodily functions as part of his performance. But, uh, it was, he's a fascinating guy. When you're young, and you're, you're really committed to one thing, uh, you, can, you can achieve a great deal. You know, young people with uh, focus and, and uh, self-discipline, they, they make things happen in the world. And when you get a small group together, uh, you can make things happen even better. Uh, if it's a group of photographers and you want to start a photography comp, uh, uh, collective or a magazine or uh, a business, you know, you get two or three computer nerds together and they want to, st you got, you end up with Facebook or, 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 you know, six or seven guys and, you know, you're the third Reich and you try to destroy the world, you know, a few people together can really be a powerful thing. So I had a few people together and I made this band and the band uh, made a lot of noise for a minute. And then I found out how hard it was to sustain and that I couldn't actually control people and I couldn't, couldn't actually make anyone do anything. And uh, the market forces and the political forces and, and the internal um, uh, emotional immaturity uh, combined and the band broke up and, and, it, and it all ended like all bands break up. <laughs> <laughs> the MC5 is not unique in this regard. You know, the center never holds. So I'm, uh, you know, barely in my 20s, and everything I achieved has gone away. Uh, you know, and, and I'm really a good guitar player. You know, I have talent, but talent's not enough. Talent will not get you through life. You need more than talent. And I didn't know that. And so I fell in with a bad crew. And I lost my way, and I s s fell into a world where what used to be considered bad was now considered good. And doing wrong became doing right. And I was terrible at it. A and ended up getting caught by the police left and right and arrested and uh, finally went to prison, which is what guys like me do. <laughs> you keep challenging the authorities, and you keep breaking the social contract um, they ultimately will have to do something to you. And um, it was a, a drug sting. Yeah, I, I was involved in a uh, conspiracy to sell cocaine. And I, I was a drug addict at the time. I was out of work, had no income. It, you know, these were economic moves on my part. Mind if I ask what your addiction was? I, I'm a narcotics addict. It was, was and a heroin? alcoholic. Yeah, I was using heroin. And I was an alcoholic, a drinking, wet alcoholic, and uh, active narcotics addict. So money's always a problem when you're one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, dealing was seemed to be um, fun, seemed to be romantic. You know, uh, alcoholics are are romantics. You know, we we think everything has this glamorous, sexy side to it. It doesn't, but we think it does. I went to prison. I was sentenced to four years in federal prison for conspiracy to, to 
distribute a controlled substance, cocaine. And I served uh, over half of that time, won a parole. I was a model prisoner. I did good in prison. Can I ask how the other inmates treated you? I was um, what what you would call a mainline regular. I was just one of the guys with a number in the facility until I started playing. And when I started playing, um, I was able to contribute something to the community of the prison and people appreciated it. Uh, you know, guys would come by, uh, you, know, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad guys in prison, you know, and bad guys would come by and say, Hey, yeah, you're the white boy with the wah wah, man. You're cool. <laughs> well, how did you get a guitar and an amp inside a prison? We, we were allowed them. Yeah, they, in those days, I went to prison at the end of the era of rehabilitation in American corrections. We had some broke down band gear. I was able to have my guitar brought down. I was able to keep my guitar in my cell. Was it the red, white, and blue guitar? <clears throat> no, no, it was uh, Les Paul, Gold Top Les Paul. And we had a band, and I was uh, locked up with a great jazz trumpeter, Red Rodney. And we studied music together. He became my mentor and my teacher and my musical father, I call him. And I went into prison, a pretty adventurous rock guitar player, and I like to think came out a competent musician. I could play bebop. Not great, but I could get around. Um, and I could read some, some changes, and uh, I knew a little bit about theory. I took a Theory 1 course that Red taught me in Berkeley School of Music, correspondence course. I'm a Berkeley guy. <laughs> and uh, and then I watched for 30 years as guys just like me went to prison, but more and more. And they didn't go to prison for four-year sentences like I got. They went to prison for 10-year sentences and 20-year sentences and life sentences for doing the same thing I did. In fact, under today's laws, my offense carries a life sentence. You know, uh, get tough on crime was a sure vote winner for politicians. And so what they've created over the last 30 years is a perfect storm of failure of social policy. The war on drugs is the greatest failure of social policy in America's domestic history. It's a national disgrace and an international embarrassment. We lock up more people than any country in the history of the world for longer periods of time. Half of the people in America's prisons are nonviolent drug offenders. They have no business being in prison in the first place. Prison should be the last resort you go to, not the first. They are first, offend, first offender, nonviolent people serving life sentences in America. And I watched this happen and I did a slow burn. It got, it made me angry. It was so wrong and nobody said anything about it. Nobody was doing anything about it. And it just got worse and worse. First tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands. Today, there's 2.3 million of our neighbors, our fellow citizens serving time in America's prisons. 10 million Americans under direct state control, parole, probation, so I thought, what could I do? I've got to do something about this. I believe one person can make a difference. And so I thought, I'm a musician. You know, I could, 
I could at least maybe do some shows in prisons. I could help prisoners that way. And one show I set up at Sing Sing in New York, the infamous maximum security facility, I got a bunch of my musician friends to come with me. And one of the guys I asked to come with me was Billy Bragg, great British troubadour and activist. And on his guitar was written the words, Jail Guitar Doors. Well, that's the title of a song that The Clash wrote about me when I did my time in the 70s. And I hadn't thought much of it in all those years. I thought, what a great show of solidarity, you know, the brothers from across the pond reaching out to me. I was very proud of them, humbled, honored. I said, Bill, what's up with that? And he said, oh, it's an old Clash B-side. Have you ever heard it? (laughs) I said, Billy, the song's about me. (laughs) So he went on to explain. He was very embarrassed. And I adore Billy Bragg. I love this man. As do I. And he explained that he wanted to honor the life of Joe Strummer. And a guy had written him a letter from a British prison. He was trying to use music as rehabilitation, but they had no guitars. Could Billy find them some guitars? He said, I could do this. I could find guitars. I'll get the rock star friends of mine to buy them. I'll collect them. I'll deliver them to the prisons, and we'll call it after this Clash song, Jail Guitar Doors, and it'll be in Joe Strummer's memory. And I, you know, over the course of playing the show at Sing Sing and the bus ride up from New York and all that, by the time we got back, I said, Bill, you know, this is good that you're doing this in England, you're British and all that, but, you know, I'm a formerly incarcerated person. I'm a musician here in America, and I think I'm uniquely positioned to do this in this country. And he said, good, because I was just going to assign you the task. (laughs) He said, Wayne, you are the only guy that can do this. So Billy Bragg, my wife, Margaret Kramer, and I founded Jail Guitar Doors USA almost five years ago now. Today, we're in over 50 American prisons with our guitars. We have a waiting list of 60 more. We have... uh, uh, in prison songwriting workshop programs in the Cook County Jail in Chicago. We have them in the LA County Jail in LA. We have them in the Philadelphia prison, county prison system. And we have them here in Austin, Texas. Our flagship program operates here at the Travis County Correctional Complex. We have great local operatives in uh, Kevin Hetcher and, and uh, Kyle and the guys who uh, go into the prison every week and, and, help people use music um, as a way to express themselves without being confrontational in a positive self-expression. We find that, you know, music has great transformative power. If we can get someone to write a song that tells their story, how they got there, maybe write a song to your mom or to your wife or to your son, it changes you to write that song. You start to see yourself differently. You start to see yourself not as a loser, not as a number, not as a bed space, but you start to see yourself as someone who can contribute something to the world. And I think it's the beginning of the hard and important work of rehabilitation, of changing, or even habilitation, to actually learn that, you know, to be creative is a great argument against 
the worthlessness that prison inculcates in people. Prisons are designed to tell you you have no value in, in the world. You're worthless. You're a pain in the ass. If you can create something, you, 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 you cannot be dissuaded from that. They can't take that away from you. You made that. It's the beginning of, of building self-respect and, and in, integrity, the things that we lose on our trip to prison. And, and it's a very powerful tool, and it's um, incredibly cost-effective. It works really well. It's really cheap. And um, It's worth saying that the, the inmates earn this right to be able to be in this program yes, through good do. behavior, so it's very popular with the wardens involved. It, it runs the gamut, you know. Uh, yeah, the guitars are carrots. They're, they're a reward for programming, for, for moving in a positive direction, um, which in itself is a step in the right direction, you know, to actually make a decision that I'm going to do something to benefit myself, to benefit the world, to, you know, to benefit my family. Because most of the people in prison are going to come out one day. 95% of these 2.3 million people are going to come out and they're going to stand next to you in the line at the supermarket. And who do you want standing next to you? A guy who's been um, brutalized and, and inculcated in a world of racism and violence and defeat and bitterness, or a guy who's had a chance to figure out how he got into trouble, you know, what in his emotional makeup he needs to work on, you know, that has a support system, maybe he needs drug and alcohol treatment, Maybe he needs anger man. I mean, we look at music as anger management. <laughs> you know, you got a choice. One day you're going to be out. Things aren't going to go your way. You have a choice. Pick up your pistol or pick up your guitar. I vote for the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're musician founded. We're musician operated. We have uh, we have operatives all over the world. We have them all over the country. We encourage people to contact us at jailguitardoors.org. Go to the website. You can learn everything there is to know about what we do and join us. Help us. You know, these are your neighbors. These are your friends and family serving time in America's prisons. You, know, you can put on your own JGD benefit concert like the one we're going to go to in a few minutes and you can raise your own money and you can buy your own guitars and take them into your own prisons and jails in your neighborhood in your town in your territory and and you can help the people that are in your own community you know, I mean I just think that this is it's a no-brainer for musicians that want to make a difference in the world I appreciate you chatting with me today Wines the pleasure's mine. I, I, it's been it's been fun. It's Thank be you. Beautiful to see you again. I think we have a gig we have to go to. Yes, we do. <laughs> go do the thing. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Wayne for chatting with me in Austin, Texas. You can find out everything you need to know about Wayne at WayneKramer.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. 
If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, if you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.